is uh, not uh, all that deep. It's pretty simple, really. Uh, it's not complex. I want to talk about God's Christmas gift to us. Uh, if anybody asks the question, what is Christmas about? What is Christmas about? Hallmark has the answer. I know. It's about Santa. It's about being good. It's about feelings. So many feelings on Hallmark. Feelings of love. It's about decorations. It's about Christmas pageants that raise funds for community centers or animal shelters. You saw the, you've seen those movies, haven't you? Yes, okay. And I, I have a confession to make. I kind of enjoy some of them. Uh, I'm going into rehab after Christmas. But if you think about some of the other images for uh, Christmas that are culturally a part of our heritage uh, here in the States, some of them are kind of creepy and send shivers up the spine. Uh, we've talked about this before, but think about a man sneaking into your house while everyone's asleep, judging you based on his perception of your good works. You know, you, and because of that, you better, not, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. You know what's really scary? He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> yeah, he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So, be good for goodness sake. You better watch out. You better not cry. What's Christmas about? The Bible has a very different answer to that question. The answer is that God so loved the world that he gave the gift of his son. So that by faith in him, we may receive the gift of eternal life in Jesus. We may be saved by faith. He does uh, see you when you are sleeping and know when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. But his love for you is unconditional and his salvation is freely given. No strings attached. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here's what I'm going to be talking about today. Three points. They're, they're, uh, uh, they're actually three lenses, sort of a macro and a medium and a micro lens. A macro lens, medium and a micro lens. The first one has to do with six words. The second one, one word. And the third one, 25 words. So six words, one word, 25 words. This is not an expository message. It's a departure for us. Usually, uh, uh, every Sunday, we uh, dig deeply into a text. Uh, today is more of a big picture day, uh, uh, a macro, medium, and micro lens. I'm going to tell you the story of the Bible in six words. That's the macro. That's the story of the Bible, six words. Then, I'm going to explain the story of the Bible by looking at one word. And then, we're going to look at the means by which... God concludes the story of the Bible, looking at 25 words. So here's the story of the Bible in six words. God forms, Satan deforms, Jesus transforms. God created us in his image to have communion with him, with one another, unmarred by sin, by self-centeredness, by anger, by pain, by cancer, 
by anything that would separate us from each other or from him. God forms, Satan deforms, Jesus transforms. Here's the explanation of the story of the Bible, the medium lens, looking at one word, and that word is the word curse. It has to do with Jesus, with, the, with uh, Satan deforming the world. After God formed all things, they were very good. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. They decided that they liked Satan's promises better than they liked God's truth. Hey, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You mean God has told you not to do something? Listen, you want to do what's true for you, not what's true for him. So, at that point, here's where the word curse comes in. The Hebrew idea behind the word in its verb and noun forms is to remove someone from God's protection, God's grace, and God's presence. To remove from someone from God's protection, God's grace, and God's presence. The first time the word curse is used is in Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because they, Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then a little bit later, to Adam he said, because you have not listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I've commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It's interesting, Adam and Eve themselves were not cursed. Satan was. He was entirely removed from God's presence, from God's grace. And the created world now became subject to futility, to natural evil. So you've got hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and tsunamis. And in order to eat, man will now have to earn his food by the sweat of his brow. And Romans 8 tells us the whole creation groans and suffers awaiting that ultimate final redemption. Why? Because it's under a curse. The first human to be cursed is Cain. That is, to be cursed by God. Adam and Eve repented. Cain did not. In his murder of his godly brother, his rebellion and against God, God's word, he was removed from the protection of God, from the presence of God, from the grace of God. But God had a plan of redemption, of removal of that curse, which would be by grace through faith. Man on his own cannot remove the curse, but God can. God's plan was to enter human history and deal with sin and the curse once and for all. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read that God promises this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. You is singular. The woman is singular. Between you, your seed and her seed. Seed is usually a collective noun in the Old Testament. But he becomes singular again. He, a specific seed who's male. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. So he will give you a destructive blow. You will give him a wound. 
from which you will re ultimately recover. It's an interesting promise, isn't it? And think about that. The seed of the woman? Males have seed, not the seed of the woman. But God has a plan in mind. And then after this, God chose Abram to be the father of the Jewish nation, and he gave him this promise. I will bless those who bless you, so you've got the blessing part, and I will curse those who curse you. So far, so good. But listen to this amazing statement of promise. In you, all families of the earth will be blessed. And this promise is expanded on through the prophecies of the coming Messiah over the centuries. A way will be opened to God's presence, God's protection, God's grace. And the last two prophets in the Old Testament, as those prophecies continued to, uh, to grow and the accretions of truth began to point more and more to, uh, to a being who was going to be out of Nazareth, to, to one who was going to be born in Bethlehem, to one who was going to die in our place for our sins. All of those prophecies pointing to, ultimately to Jesus, but as they continued to funnel down through that pr pr prophetic funnel, the last two books of the Old Testament are Zechariah Malachi. Zechariah Malachi. Zechariah's 14 chapters, Malachi's four chapters. In the 14th chapter, the last chapter of Zechariah, we read this. In that day, and Zechariah talked a lot about a day is coming, a day is coming. Zechariah says this, in that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Then later on he says this, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. There's this future day that's coming where everything is surrounded by blessing. Listen to this. People will live in it. That is in this new Jerusalem. What Revelation calls the new Jerusalem. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse. For Jerusalem will dwell in security. And then we come to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Four chapters. The last chapter has six verses. The last verse has 33 words. And the last word, which is the last word of the chapter, the last word of Malachi, the last word of the Old Testament, is the word curse. It begins with a curse, and the Old Testament closes with the prophecy of John the Baptist, who will bring a message about how God is going to relieve man of that curse. God's plan of salvation is that God himself will show up. The old the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. So God had to take form that could die so that he himself could pay the wages of sin in the way that we experience death. Because while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So what did Jesus do about the curse? Listen to this. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
having become a curse for us. The gospel restores all things. God forms, Satan deforms, but Jesus transforms. In Revelation 21, verse 5, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 22, verse 3, the Bible ends this way. There will no longer be any curse. The means by which God concludes the story of the Bible, how he brings us about this, this happily, eternally ever after, is that Jesus transforms. And that brings us to one verse, very, very familiar verse, 33 words. John 3, 16, God's Christmas gift to you and me. And here's the background, uh, the backdrop of John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He was one of the key leaders in the Jewish synod, the Sanhedrin. What does Jesus say to a man who's acknowledged to be a spiritual leader in the nation? Nicodemus was a good man, right? Well, what does Jesus say to this good man who's a spiritual leader who has a good reputation. Here's what he says. He says, you know, you just need to keep up the good work. You're 90% there. You just need the other 10%. That's just me. Is that what he says? No. You've got to be born all over again. He tells him that three times. You've got to be born from above. He makes it clear that what Nicodemus needs is not more law or more obedience to the law, more good works, but radical rebirth. Someday we'll do an exposition of the chapter, a whole chapter, but today I just want to focus on this one verse. Verse 16 is the spiritual pronouncement over the whole interview. It's a foundational statement that's universally true at all times for all people in all places. And this is what it says. For God so, so loved the world. Not just Israel. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'm going to incorporate uh, the results of, uh, I've done a careful study of the Greek text of this verse, and I'm going to incorporate that into an expanded rendering. And here it is. To this amazing degree, the infinite God proves his love for the world that of all possible gifts, he gave us his son, his only son, the, unique, the most unique being in the universe for this purpose, that whoever believes in him should not perish in the future, but right now in the present and extending into eternity future, possess the joy of eternal life with God. This reminds us of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? As Christmas comes near, what do, you say, what do we say about God's amazing love? There's so many things that we could say to describe the saving love of God. But I'm just going to pick one word that you might not expect, and that word is infinite. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 speak about both the love of the Father and the Son. And listen to this. 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all, rooted and grounded in love, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of that love. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. You get know the love of Christ, which surpasses being able to be known. Here's the result. So that you will just be filled up to all the fullness of God. The point here is that we can only know infinite love in part because we're finite beings. We can't know infinite love infinitely. But even so... If you, if you meditate on God's grace and God's love and what he's done, what John 3, 16 says, do you ever get just filled up with that? We should. Theologically, we speak of the infinity of God. He's infinite with regard to time. That's called eternality. He's infinite with regard to space. That's called omnipresence. He's infinite with regard to power. That's called omnipotence. But he's also infinite with regard to love, and that's called the cross. That is what we point to as the measure of infinite love when he who knew no sin became sin for us and absorbed into himself not only all of our sins, past, present, and future, but also all our griefs and our sorrows because some of you are here today with broken hearts. I know you are. Jesus was not unaware of that on the cross. That was a part of that which he sucked into himself and then cried out, it is finished, so that all the brokenness was dealt with. And by faith, his grace forgives us of our sins and heals our brokenness. And we look forward to the day when all things will be made new. This is the infinite love of God, and it's totally out of proportion to any return that he would ever receive for us. The measure of his love is the cross. This is just, it's immoderate. It's self-sacrificing love. I want to read to you, we've been studying the book of Romans. I want you to turn with me back to Romans chapter 5. Some of you are sitting there and thinking, now what year was chapter 5? I will tell you, it was 19, I mean, <laughs> never mind. It seems that way, doesn't it? It was uh, 2017. Um, uh, I have a, well, never mind. I have a big file on Romans, I'll tell you about it, in January. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to start with verse 6. I want you to look at the terms by which we are described. Because Paul is making clear our condition when we were saved had nothing, uh, our, our, our salvation had nothing to do with God looking at us and wanting us on his team. Because we're so worthy or so attractive or so winsome. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, that's the first word, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's the second term. We're helpless were ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, that's the third term, Christ died for us. 
much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved, future salvation, from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, and that's the fourth term, helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That is amazing love. How can it be? His love is out, is, is just way out of proportion to anything, any benefit he receives from us. Dr. Richard Seltzer is a retired now professor, professor of surgery at uh, Yale Medical School. And uh, he's written several books about his decades in medicine. And in one story, a little boy, age 10, had a little sister, age four, who would die without a transfusion, which only that little brother could provide in time. This was decades ago. The little brother, the little boy, looked at his sister in the hospital bed. He was silent, as Dr. Seltzer describes the scenario. And he very solemnly agreed to the transfusion. And later, when the transfusion was nearly over, he lay side by side with his sister. He was patting her, keeping her calm. Uh, and he turned his head and calmly but with a catch in his throat, asked, Doctor, how soon will I die? Because he thought he was giving his life for his sister. We've all heard stories of unbelievable heroism. We heard stories where men will throw themselves on a grenade to save the lives of their fellow soldiers, where parents will give their lives for their children. God's love goes far beyond giving your life for a family member or even giving your life for a band of brothers. Christ died for those who were helpless, ungodly sinners, and here's the word, enemies. Enemies. And I can't leave John 3.16 without reading verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Listen, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. The purpose of the, of the, uh, the son outside, the purpose of of our son is to give light, not to cast shadows. But shadows are the natural consequences of having a son out there. Likewise, judgment is the natural consequence of the coming of Jesus, God's son. Simply by being who he is, Jesus forces people to choose between two categories in verse 18, the saved and the condemned. There's no th third alternative. So, the question is, into which category do you place yourself? Do you choose to place yourself? Because according to the Bible, you can't say, I choose neither one because you are already in one. At that point, you remain in your sins, the result of which is death, infinite death, eternal 
death. And the wrath of God remains. God so loved the world that he gave the gift of his son so that we could be saved through faith in him. Now, the question is, how do you personally respond to that gift? If I were to say to you, uh, Lewis, I've got a gift here. How should he respond? Just look at it. A gift is to be received. Let's say that Betsy got me a wonderful Christmas gift. She's been thinking about it for months. She knows I need it. She knows I'll be out of my gourd, excited to receive it. She sacrificed of herself to get it for me. Now, how could I possibly abuse that gift? There are four ways. I could abuse it, first of all, by not being thankful for it. Can you imagine receiving a, passage for, or a package from someone who has sacrificed to give you that gift, and, and all you do is just give them a stony glare back. You just look in their face and don't say a single word. Oh. God's most important gift is Jesus. And when the New Testament speaks of God's gift of Jesus, Paul just can't keep it in. So he just explodes with this statement, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You can also abuse it by not accepting it, not receiving it, just ignoring it. Somebody says, this gift is for you. I sacrificed of myself to get it for you. Would you yawn and say, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe it's for me. Maybe it's not. Maybe you sacrificed. You say you did. Maybe you didn't. You know, maybe it's life-changing, but I really can't be bothered right now. Thank you very much. What astonishing apathy. What astound, an astounding insult. Let's be clear. Not to receive the gift is to reject not just the gift, but the giver. A third way you could abuse it is by not appreciating it for what it truly is. Sometimes people open presents and, and look at it and say, well, I see what that is, uh, but I don't really need this. Thank you very much. And you know what? Over the next couple of weeks, that will happen. <laughs> it, 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 it may be true. But the thing is, you can never say that to God who knows exactly what you and I need. Thanks, God. I know that you think I need this, but I know better than you what my needs are. And I don't need Christ. You would be horribly wrong. You'd be eternally wrong. Or you could just take the package and abuse it in this last way by never opening it. How strange would that be? You know, I'm so glad to receive this gift. It's beautifully wrapped. I love the bow. Colors are pretty. Paper's nice. Um, I'm going to take it home and put it on my table. I'm going to look at it from time to time. I'm going to enjoy the ambiance of having it here on our table, and, and we'll 
look at the paper and look at the bow, maybe take a picture of it. And maybe a month or two, I'll just put it on the shelf in the closet. Thank you very much. You know, in the movie Castaway, Tom Hanks plays a FedEx official marooned on an island for years. And one thing in the story that he uses to preserve his sanity is to protect the integrity of this one package that he never opens. And at the end of the movie, after he's rescued, he personally delivers that unopened package. Uh, later, some humorist drew a great, I just loved it, a great cartoon where the recipient looked at the unopened box and said, oh, thank you. For years, I've wondered whatever happened to my fire starter kit, my ranger knife, and my solar-powered satellite phone. <laughs> Once we receive a gift, what do we do with it? We open it. We use what is inside. Jesus transforms, and that is an ongoing process for the rest of our lives. It's an amazing journey. So, God's gift to you is Jesus. If you've not received the gift of eternal life, I want to issue you an invitation and a challenge. The invitation is that you pray to receive Christ as your Savior. To as many as received him, to them he gave the rights to become children of God, those who believe on his name. To recognize that you are a sinner and say, Lord, I cannot save myself. I have to rely on what you have done to save me. And the challenge is this. Is there any reason why you should not receive God's gift of salvation? Is your pride holding you back? If you're trying to earn your way into heaven to get good enough, that will never happen. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We can't bridge that gap between God and man. Only God has the power to initiate that. And that's what he did at Christmas. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Lord, I thank you for this meditation. I thank you for the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And thank you, Father, for the opportunity to receive him now as our Savior. Those who do not know him, that they would place their trust in you. That is our prayer. That is our plea. Father, we thank you that uh, as, we, as we look at the story of Christmas, as we look at these various words, that the curse has been lifted in Jesus. And one day we look. Uh, unto that day when faith will become sight, when uh, hope will be realized, and we will be seeing the one who loves us so much that he'd rather die than live without us. I pray this in his name. Amen.